1: Sarah with First Circle, and today I'm so excited to be joined by Marina Farrell, and she is the Executive uh, Director of the Changing Women Initiative. It's a Native American-centered health and justice organization serving New Mexico and Arizona. But as we talked about before we started recording, this is applicable all over the world, so we're so excited to hear about her expertise. She's um, active in multiple public health initiatives and coalitions with her community and at the national and international levels. She's got backgrounds in, um, I mean, very diverse background in street-level medic work and immigration activism in Arizona, clinical government policy work in Mexico and Africa, organizational development and facilitation in the U.S.-Mexico with various nonprofits, and a founding board member of a, a free primary care clinic called the Phoenix Allies for Community Health. She's also passionate about advocating for traditional and community health workers and has worked as a staff midwife for birth centers and medical facilities internationally. She's also been a program co- uh, coordinator for traditional midwives and an educator. She's the owner of F- Phoenix Midwife, which is a long standing midwifery practice and Casa Ancestral focused on creating nation- uh, traditional healing spaces. Marina has worked extensive- extensively in North America um, as oh, sorry, in the North American Midwifery Collaborations and served as a past president past of MANA, Midwives Alliance of North America. That was a mouthful because you are all the things. So <laughs> thank
0: you. Definitely sorry about that. Oh, oh darn,
1: <laughs> your resume's too long. Okay, I just, that's why I'm the host and not the actual podcaster because my tongue gets all twisted. That was amazing. I'm so excited to hear about Everything you have to say. So, first of all, what does Changing Women, the Changing Women Initiative, do?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much, Sarah, for asking me to come on the show. It's really nice to be here. Um, So, I'm Marina, or Marina, if you speak Spanish. Um, I am really excited to talk a little bit about our work here at Changing Women Initiative. Changing woman is actually a deity, a Diné or Navajo deity, and she represents sort of the life force and the life change of a woman's, you know, just her life cycle, basically. And so there's lots of stories around changing woman. And so our founder, Nicole Gonzalez, is Diné, and she decided that, you know, for her, changing women really exemplified what women go through, through their entire life cycle. And, you know, we always like to be gender neutral at changing women. So we think women and people, who identify with the deity and with the changes in their life and things like that. The big journey, I guess. It's such oh, a okay. Journey. So
1: it's it's a deity, but it's a deity mm-hmm. that centers on the changes and the growth in life or Oh life. yeah.
0: So she there's a lot of stories around her. And so that would be like a whole podcast in it. Okay. I would recommend though, you know, on our website, um, Nicole Sister Kansas, Begay, who was a Miss Indian World, she actually tells the story of Changing Woman. It's a beautiful story. So I would recommend to anybody, if you have an interest and you want to hear the story, just head over to our website and you can hear her tell the whole story. Um, But it's really cool because I think for Nicole, it, it motivated her to sort of think about how the journey of birth really changes people and, you know, what it can do in terms of healing and um, in terms of how people think about their lives and not just how they're birthing, but how they're eating and how they're parenting and how they're healing from their own traumas. Like there's so many pieces and and how their community views birth. So changing women really seeks to address this idea that the way that we birth is how we heal our communities. And so Mm. Changing Women does it with a focus on tribal communities in New Mexico, but for sure, you know, we are in touch with, and I feel like we work with, and we also maybe have an impact on, because I know they have an impact on us, other Native projects throughout North America.
1: Awesome. So it's, it's, uh so you're based in this deity, but your modality for healing is kind of birth. That's, that's the what you've kind of picked to focus on as a tool for healing.
0: For sure. It's kind of like the bringing back of the midwife. So, you know, midwives in traditional communities, we were the original primary care providers. And so, so, yeah, so it's bringing back the midwife. And by bringing back the midwife, you bring back aspects of traditional healing and medicine that are so important. And so it's, yes, it's about birth, but it's also just about how we are, how we, how we're born how we take care of each other, how we support one another, how we heal through foods or through traditional medicines, how we educate one another. So I think when you think about the work of the midwife in her community, it's really so much broader than just birth. So for us, it's bringing back traditional midwives. So in our case, it's tribal midwives back to their communities because basically tribal midwives were decimated by col- yeah. colonialism, you know? So it's a way to bring back the healing to every individual community because every tribal community is different. Yeah. And so um, by bringing back their midwives, they'll bring back a lot of traditional healing and health.
1: It's, it's the first step, one of the first step and probably the most powerful step, right? In reclaiming
0: yeah. that heritage.
1: Okay. So let me backtrack a little bit. What got you into this Whole birthy world?
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, I always feel like I was chosen. I was chosen divinely to be a midwife. But that being said, um, oftentimes midwives don't know that. And so in my case, I have been active in uh, movement work since I can remember. I remember being in the third grade and Uh, forming my first coalition and actually like I created symbols for us and I held signs and I remember talking about Jimmy Carter I mean the whole thing like um, in the third grade and so I was also um, only one of a couple of people of color at my school and so that also had a significant impact on me as well Um, so you know really my whole life I've been in some form or another involved in coalition or collaborative work I love that you
1: Justice. You knew that i like what was I doing in third grade? I was selling like 80s version spidget spinners out of spidget Aww. fidget spinners out of my desk. I was like the wheeling and dealing, trying to get like the business, like getting our coupons together to buy cool. a popsicle party. <laughs> I love it. Yeah.
0: What we're doing in That's third grade enterprising. and enterprising. It- <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> I
0: I mean, I always tell people like one of the first symbols that I was like, oh, this is going to be our logo. I mean, I even knew the word about a logo in the third grade Yeah, and it was, (laughs) it was actually the anarchist symbol, which I had no idea ever, you know, I don't even know where I saw that, but so, you know, I kind of was born into this body and into this journey with yeah, just with some, you know, knowing.
1: I love it. So that you've been prepared for this work your whole life and just
0: even before. Yeah, Yeah. I believe it. I mean, I think that that's how midwives are chosen. I think we come in to do a certain job and, you know, and, and I think that I, I actually pursued politics. So I studied political, political theory and politics. I thought I was going to go into academia and instead ended up getting more and more involved in the work of advocacy for midwives. And, Um, became a midwife. So that's sort of how it started. But I grew up with a healer. My mother was a healer. So I grew up um, really, truly learning from my first teacher about herbal medicines and traditional healing and also home birth. And um, so I think that it's just always been my path. And I think coming, I've had, I've been a midwife for over 25 years and I've worked in every setting. I've had a home birth practice in Arizona for a very long time. And so I think the combination of politics and clinical work in my life has brought me to where I am now with Changing Woman Initiative, which is a combination of both. You know, it's a little bit about how we care in a very practical sense, you know, very clinical sense for our families, but it's also about how we're going to change the world. Yeah. So both oh my
1: goodness. I love it. I love it. Okay. So what of type- um, of midwives are there, especially in Arizona, yeah. but um, it, midwives in the United States. And why is that so confusing? And why does that mess with yes. the? We talked about how the midwife was taken away from colonialism, but now there's even more layers of confusion. So, help us kind of cut through all that.
0: Yeah, I love that question, Sarah, because I do think it's very confusing. Especially in the United States, you know, in what I always say is in the rest of the world, a midwife is a midwife. But here in the United States, it's very much not like that, because in the history of midwifery in North America, and I like to talk about North America as a whole, because uh, for indigenous peoples, they our history is one. So it's really important that we don't believe in borders that we don't believe in boundaries because it further separates the work that we do as traditional peoples. So in the Americas, what ended up happening was that when obstetrics was sort of, you know came across the ocean and it landed in the United States there were of course, midwives practicing many, many midwives. And well, yeah, you know, burning, even depending obviously. on, yeah, right. I mean, for sure. And so by the 30s though, uh, male obstetrics had already started to sort of malign the midwife. And really what what the thing is is that midwives that were traditional midwives, whether they were black midwives serving their communities in the South or you know um, other immigrant midwives or indigenous midwives, what ended up happening was that they got more uh, more and more maligned and and mm-hmm. more um, sort of, cast aside in a way that Almost we've never a little bit yeah, we've never recovered from that no we haven't. and what the what the obstetric system did was actually subsume midwifery into nursing in the united states so it was a way to sort of like have midwives under the control of a physician but it was also a way to ensure that people that didn't have access to education and resources just could never get into the field you know so it was a very Um, colonial vision for how births should happen. And it was taken out of out of communities, and it was put into an institution. So really, what ended up happening in the US is it wasn't really until the 70s or 80s when white feminism decided to bring it back. Um, But for traditional communities, the impact it had on us was really devastating. Thankfully, in the black communities, those midwives were really able to retain a lot of their traditions. But in indigenous communities, there was almost none. Um, Mm. so, So it's a, a matter of bringing it back. Canada was lucky. They've had indigenous and first nations, midwives practicing um, always, and they've been more respected. They've had birth centers and other areas like that for forever. And um, even now with their licensure, it's a much better system of licensure and they are not nurses, they're midwives. And so they have a, a much broader scope of practice. Oh yeah, because
1: in the United States, they have to go through nursing school to become a certified nurse midwife or it's the direct yeah. entry. And right. MANA, so yeah, to talk about, because I'm like, you know all the things because you were <laughs> president of MANA. So yeah, the, the Midwives Alliance of North America. I know some mm-hmm. of my friends have taken the
0: big gnarly test. Um yeah, that's actually something else. That's actually Narm, which that's is. That's Narm. Which is, okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. So no. explain. okay <laughs> Fix it in yes. my head.
0: That's okay. So, so Canada, right, they have cop, they have a total formal way to get licensed. There's only one type of midwife there. And in Mexico, there is no licensure, uh, but mm. there are thousands and thousands of practicing traditional midwives. So it's a very unique country. So what happened in the U.S. is that, yes, so there's nurse midwives and there's CNMs. And it's basically, it's a nursing degree that's a sort of a more specialized education. It's more like a master's or a, a PhD in nursing, so it has a specialized emphasis on midwifery. You also still do have traditional midwives in the US, and so they identify without having any sort of licensure through their regulatory system. Um, And they vary. So for instance, um, the Mennonite community, they may have their own midwives and those are considered traditional midwives. Um, They have no need to license because their work is very much based in community and their community recognizes them and takes care of them as their Mm -hmm. traditional midwife. There are direct entry midwives, and that is a it's a term that isn't really popular anymore because it was another way to sort of be derogatory about midwives. They would call us direct entry or lay midwives. Um, And basically it was kind of like saying like, oh, they just kind of got here and were midwives without having gone through school and they Mm. learned on YouTube and all this other stuff. Uh, But the, (laughs) the reality is that really there's licensed midwives or there's certified professional midwives. And it's confusing because licensed midwives and certified professional midwives are not nurses. So consumers need to know that some consumers prefer nurses. Um, but also the way that the U S regulatory system works is that every state has its own system of regulation, right? So exactly. I, although I'm licensed in Arizona and in New Mexico, I could not get licensed in like Oklahoma, for instance, or Hawaii or, you know, places like that without either going through their system or it's possible that they don't even have licensure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a little bit confusing. You could come way. to Utah
1: pretty much. No problem. Yeah. yeah. I know. I'm yeah. Kind, I'm Utah's kind of doing some exciting things. Yeah. we. Oh, Utah is neat. Very, very cool in terms of the laws that protect yeah. and, and encourage safe midwifery practice. Love it. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean? Um, so, okay. Oh man, I have so many questions. So I want to get into the reclaiming birth and the, the cultural practices and how to heal through this space. But let me just ask one more question. It's kind of a segue. How do you, then select the right provider for you de- dependent on your goals. Like mm. if your goal is to reclaim, to, to bring in spiritual or um, cultural practices from your heritage, uh, or if you, I mean, how do you reconcile? Which, yeah. which professor do you, uh, professor, which professional do you find? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, okay, so I'll preface this by saying it's probably 93% of midwives are white. They're not people of color. So, and then already there are not enough midwives in our country. So that right there means that many, many people from people of color communities are not going to be served by anybody that's from their community. So I just really want to put that out there because I think that it's a hard, it's very hard to be someone that really wants to have ceremony and want to understand how your ancestors um, celebrated birth and what medicines they used and things like that. So sometimes there really isn't an option to have somebody that is a provider that can um, fully understand the nuances of one's own community. But what I would say is that for folks that are interested and they want a provider that's from their community or from their ancestry, social media is a really good place to start because there's, yeah, there's so many groups.
1: You brought up a point that I don't think I've ever, I mean, I thought about it, but not in these specific terms, like exactly, but there are some people that don't even realize that they are part of a community and it's not until they are that they have somebody that's kind of abrasive. Well, they'll see them as abrasive when it's just a cross-cultural incompatibility. Incompatibility, right? So, like, so many of us hmm. assume that the people that we live around are kind of how everybody else thinks. I, I, my parents live in the South, and they tell me stories sometimes that come up in church. We're in the same, same basic church, but the denominations, the things that come up in the South are different than that come up here in Utah, and it's just, it's fascinating. So. Even not knowing that, I don't know. Can you speak to that a little bit? Like, that's combat- tricky because yeah. I
0: think that I don't want to excuse um, the realities that we know that racism and bias in birth oh, is why sure. people of color are dying and why they don't have access oh. to maternal health care and all these things. So I. I think that there is truth around cultural safety. So I think that there are practitioners that are more culturally safe than others. And so I think that a practitioner doesn't necessarily have to be from your community to be safe, but they may not actually ever be able to understand fully the ceremony. Mm -hmm. So this is particularly true for tribal folks. I mean, Native Americans, Every government and every tribe is different and they all have their own ways, their own life ways, their own ceremonies, things like this. And it's so critical that it can't be it can't be overstated how important ceremony is to the work of birth and death both. And I think that also mm. how often tribal members have to leave their communities to access um, care is also another problem. So I think it's, it's ho- so hard to answer that without really making the system and the racism in the system responsible for the fact that we can't access our care providers. Um, I, you know, I'm, o- I'm okay our-
1: if you hold it responsible, yeah. but I just, I feel like some, what you, what you said triggered this thought in my mind that sometimes the abuse that we feel or that that we experience when we go out of our culture, it's because of a cultural incompatibility and, There is, like you said, there's safety in being with a culturally competent or somebody from your own
0: culture. Is that, that's what you're seeing, right? I'm saying that racism is usually to blame for the mistreatment of people in Mm. the maternal health system. It's not cultural incompatibility. It's generally because most providers, yes, most providers are not people of color and they, uh, they have bias and often people that are, oh, sorry, I have a little thing for bug? Um, Often people that are not that do not have anti-racism training or were not raised around people of color or so many other things, it's, it's bias that they might, may not even be aware of, but it's bias based in racism because oh. our healthcare system is also based on that. It so is, incompatibility is a little bit different. And I think that we do see that sometimes here we have um, we have, for instance, we have 20, we have lots of lots of different types of tribes here. That's, And so as we look at who our providers are, we may have a provider that's from one community or one tribal community serving somebody that's in another because there's less than 20 certified nurse midwives who are native in this country, twenty less, less than that. And there's probably less than like 10 certified professional midwives that are tribally affiliated. So there's so few that you're going to see them serving each other's community. And I think in that case, it may not be racism. It could be people of color have bias also sometimes, but it could be more of a cultural incompatible thing where it could be that maybe a Navajo midwife may not know the tribal. Yeah, customs. that's
1: that. Okay, so I was being very generous and in using <laughs> incompatibility, and that that's a perfect example of of some compatibility friction. But that's different than flat out racism.
0: Yeah, we know that we know that our maternal numbers, like our stats in the U.S., we know that that's from racism. Like it's without a doubt. Yeah. Um. And so that's why I can't. Agree with it because I think that it really is for almost most of the time, it really is because of racism. So, and is because- Manna,
1: does Mana incorporate uh, encompass even certified nurse midwives, or is it only mm. professional midwives outside of the
0: system? Is it only home birth? And well, birth let me talk about the associations because I think that's a that's a good thing to talk about. So, there are like. Five, five or six, I think um, midwifery associations in the United States. That's another reason it's a bit confusing because there's a bunch of them. Right. So there's the American College of Nurse Midwives that they are for nurse midwives and then there is, um, there's the, um, there's an association that's specific to certified professional midwives. It's the NACPM and they're specific to certified professional midwives. MANA is the Midwives Alliance of North America, and they're open to anybody. So any midwives, traditional license. Oh, got it. Okay. Nurse. So it's,
1: the, it's probably the most inclusive, yeah. the biggest. Yeah. Right. It's like all got of it. them.
0: And then there's NAB, which is, um, gosh, I don't want to.
1: North I don't want to, I don't
0: want to, it's, they're actually the, um, they are for black birth. Uh, they're the national oh. association for black birth. And I'm so sad that I'm not remembering their whole full name right now. They used to be, they used to have a different name, which is why. Okay. So here's the example. Right? Let's just
1: pause really quick so you can find it. And then we'll yes, just, let me it.
0: pause. This is great. Um, Okay perfect so there's also the national association to advance black birth and they're really powerful in terms of trying to organize an association to represent you know black midwives and things like that and then there's all sorts of alliances you know there's a lot of different alliances that yeah. exist for birth workers and birth okay
1: workers so uh do you feel like racism is less or more of a problem like, do you think racism is less of a problem in the, um, the lame? I, I, I agree with you. I don't like to call it direct entry. It's (laughs) even
0: worse. It's, it's, it's not less of a problem because in every association, except for the ones that are specifically for people of color, they're still almost entirely white midwives. And so they are not, as a matter of fact, I actually don't even, I don't affiliate too much with any of the, those ones except for the midrise, rise because we have seen through the last decade that all of the associations that are national associations have issues with racism mm-hmm. and so so many of us have actually left the work you know I worked with MANA for a long time I left because they were very very much being um, you know just a- anti-people of color as I felt like the other what other associations were too and I think a lot of us have kind of said like hey you know We're happy to work with you all and and all of that, but truly midwifery in this country belongs to people of color. I mean, that's just what's real. And so it's sad because our traditions were taken away from us, whether you're a black person or a brown person or an Asian person, our traditions were taken away from us and sort of repackaged into this different thing that absolutely became inaccessible to people of color. So Families weren't able to become midwives. They weren't able to access midwives. Yeah, that midwives when you said that, to, that
1: made my blood on on. boil. That I had not thought of it that way, but it's so true. If you make it inaccessible, yeah. then you inadvertently—I mean—you discourage brand new traditional midwives, you know, yes, to come up because sure. they've already been
0: disadvantaged. Yeah. And unfortunately, you see this in a lot of, I mean, this is not unique to North America. It's all over the place. There's vulnerable people all over the place. And so I do think that when you think about traditional midwives in the world, that our traditional midwives are they're caught between traditional ceremonial practices and governments that don't honor those practices, as well as regulatory agencies that have their own motives for doing healthcare the way that they want to do healthcare. So- so how
1: do we fix this? Absolutely not unique. Is it? Trends?
0: Well, I think that it- I think it's empowering midwives. You know, the World Health Organization is doing a lot of empowering of midwives and trying to have the world understand that midwives are the solution. You know, we still have what is that? I think two airplanes full of women that die every day. I mean, it's like crazy amount of maternal death that's still happening. And the World Health Organization has been really busy um, trying to sort of illuminate like, gosh, if you all just get your midwives, get get your midwives and support them, educate them, make them... Um, M- more available, especially like in rural areas or areas where there are gaps or areas where people are not able to access medical care for whatever reason. The thing is, is that the governments and the systems have to support those midwives. Because for instance, I worked in a beautiful community in Southern Mexico, right on the border of Mexico and Guatemala, and I would go kind of back and forth. And I worked in the highest, it's a region in Mexico where that, it's the highest maternal mortality rate. And what I know and what everybody knows who does midwifery around the world is that midwives especially particularly traditional midwives that maybe don't have like a formal education, but they've been working in their community. Yeah. They actually save lives every day, mm-hmm. but the government blames them for poor outcomes. But what it really is, is that the government is not providing medicines or transportation or yeah. equipment so, or anything like that. So for like the 99
1: that. mamas, they save- Like artists. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've heard all the stories. The one that dies, they blame them. Whereas what's the mortality rate in the hospital under the medical care? Huge.
0: It's so it's, and you'll never know because in a lot of those governments, it's very secret. Well, ours is exactly the same. The United States is exactly the same. Hospitals don't have to give out their stats. We know that we have one of the, we have the highest maternal mortality rate of any developed nation in the world. And hospitals can be very secretive about it, but you have one home birth gone awry. And the and whole it's, state's of flutter. The whole state, you know, will find out or whatever. Mm. And it's this myth that I think COVID, one of the blessings of COVID is that I think that people who didn't feel that hospitals were dangerous before actually started to <laughs> understand. I know that maybe they're yeah. not the safest place and you know it's something that people of color have known for forever. We yeah. we've known that hospitals are not really safe spaces for us. But I think for folks that are privileged and maybe had a little bit more of trust in that system sort of sort of started to think like, hey, maybe I shouldn't I'm ha- I'm having this beautiful healthy natural wonderful pregnancy and I have no existing health conditions. I have a great partner. I have a wonderful support system. I have good food and water and all this other good stuff. Like maybe I can actually have my baby at home. Maybe I'm not sick. Maybe I don't need to go to some Mm -hmm. uh, place where there are sick people, especially sick people with COVID. So I think that there was a little bit of blessing in that. Yeah. I I
1: see that too. Uh, One of the scary things though, some people went to home births Uh, that weren't really ready for home birth. So that, I mean, there were some pluses and minuses, but overall I feel like, Covid Very actually true. really helps the birth world. I think it. It's I mean, yeah, I do think. I know that overall, were... <laughs> long term, I think it's a benefit, but short term, there's a lot of PTSD happening right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that a lot of midwives did have to sort of reckon with like, hey, some of these people coming are coming because they're f- they're afraid, yep. and you know, it, again, even for you know, as we saw during COVID all over the world who got the brunt of it was mothers and babies, you know, and that's what we always see. And of course it just really resonated. Like somehow they ended up kind of like having to deal with COVID even though, uh, it shouldn't have been like that. Yeah.
1: So, so true. So in terms of, okay, so we need to support our traditional midwives. We need to create opportunities for those that would not normally be able to take traditional routes when i say traditional uh, they're two type the what do you is it colonialism the 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 medical route those that you know those that are not able to go to college because their family can't afford it they're basically barred from the midwifery profession just because they can't so go hard. to school so we need to support those that can't go that route i don't want to call it the traditional route because we use the traditional the other way um but then support yeah I love Utah and you say direct entry midwife is a, ba- is, a is not a word that that, it, that it's kind of fallen out of favor. I can totally see that. <laughs> but I also really like it because here in Utah, you can direct entry, you can go an apprentice yeah. and you can, you, you know, you can catch a bazillion babies and mm-hmm. then call yourself a midwife and go for it. And so That's I think awesome. it does level the playing field in some ways, but there's still how, ha- you know, her childcare while she's at birth and supporting her family while she's in her
0: apprenticeship, right? Because usually apprenticeships aren't paid. So, yeah, I mean, I always think about like a community, like centering the community. I think it's really important. So like even in Utah, um, whoever, wherever, what, like even in your community, your neighborhood, when you think about the kind of midwife that needs to be serving your community, I think that it's real for consumers to know that even if you have a supportive regulatory system in your state, that the United States overall is not supportive of midwifery. Right. And so I think that for consumers to know that it really does take consumers to change the laws and to make the regulations better. Well, also just Um, in
1: our own communities. I mean, I know a midwife, she is going to school. She's hardcore right now. And her husband, is the stay-at-home dad and he cool like he takes care of it and people kind of judge them and i'm like okay come on we said we wanted more midwives and now we have a partner stepping up <laughs> so that his partner can become a midwife and we're all like thinking he's weird come on guys like where where are the the child care route in the the you know circles where's the babysitter's club yeah. you know that that take care of <laughs> I mean, you know,
0: I think that this is a good point because I don't think anybody can have a conversation about birth without talking about their own internalized things, right? Like I think that, I think that even just having, starting out a community, starting out with just birth, like if you're a consumer that loves birth, just start out with a birth circle in your own living room Mm -hmm. and talk about how everybody birthed and talk about how you were born because it's really hard to heal birth and to heal your community without healing oneself, you know? So really just start, really just start there. Mm-hmm. um and then you'll start to see you know consumers really coming out and being like whoa I, understanding because i think the politics are very complicated yes. in our country for midwives and so i think it does take some like having to figure out figure but i out.
1: love i love your imagery of circling up it's called birth circle for a reason circling yeah. up and talking about your experiences and just also knowing that sometimes you'll never be able to go back generations past because they're, you know, some of our moms and midwives, our grandmas are just so sealed. They're so either traumatized yes. or is another yeah. era where we just didn't talk about those things publicly. And that to heal your own birth can sometimes just be a one-sided thing. I know I had the opportunity of talking to my mom about my birth, but not everybody does.
0: Mm. Right? Yeah, no, it's, and it's such a special thing. And, and it is, there is a lot of trauma. And also I do think that that like baby boomer generation or even the Gen X generation, right? There still wasn't uh, an acceptance of women talking about right. their birth stories. And so I do think that that's really important. I do want to say one thing though, when we talk about licensure that when I talk about traditional midwives that are not licensed, I talk about midwives that are, I sort of use the Mennonite example or the Amish example of where a community has recognized somebody as the midwife in their community, Um, I want to say that there are midwives that maybe had licensure and then get rid of it, or maybe they have licensure, but they've moved to a state where they're not recognized or where they choose not to license. And Mm -hmm. I think that I, I want consumers to be aware that that's actually very different Um, there are midwives that are not people of color that don't have any traditional backgrounds and don't serve a specific community, things like that, who choose not to license. And I would just say tread carefully with that, because I do think that there are some families that want that, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a midwife for everybody and there should be, you know, there is right. Yeah, yes, and just find. But... It. I know in Utah,
1: the, the <laughs> those that choose not to license license are usually because they want to do homes or bre- uh, sorry twins at home or uh-huh. breach, and so exactly. it's, a li- it's a choice. But they're sometimes it more is. experienced than the licensed midwives, and they they do a, actually. I think in this state, a pretty good job of educating their consumers. Like the first time a first time appointment, I've heard lots of midwives explain, "I am not licensed, and this is what it means, and this is why I chose yeah. that. And if you if you would like something different, then you
0: know, (laughs) and it's multi-layered know that your midwife can go to, she can go to prison for a long time doing Mm -hmm. a birth without being licensed. That's practicing medicine without a license. And so I think as consumers, you also have to recognize all the politics around that Mm -hmm. as well. Well, It depends on the state, but yeah. Um, pretty much, almost every state, a midwife can go to prison for pretty for easily, messing, even messing things up. E- even yeah. if they're licensed, if they do twins or something that's out of their scope. Um, but particularly for a midwife that chooses not to license, I think it's controversial because part of what gets me about that is that there are midwives that choose not to license, or were licensed had a hard time, lost their license, and then decide to stay unlicensed. And I think the reason that bothers me is because there are so many vulnerable people that would love nothing more than to get licensed or to have a licensed provider. And I, sometimes I feel like those midwives equate themselves and their struggles. Oh, with I see what you're saying. Truly vulnerable, or they call themselves traditional midwives and they're Not by our definition as people of color. That is
1: that is an excellent point. I was coming at from from at the angle of uh, there are some people that choose not to license because licensure requires them to act outside what they want to do. Like for example, going back to the Amish, I don't know a lot about the culture, so I just want to give that disclaimer. But yeah, perhaps (laughs) licensure in their area would require them to to act differently in a birth that would be incompatible with their community uh, practice. So then they choose to stay unlicensed so they can be true to their culture.
0: But they're traditional because they ch- they serve that community. If you're a middle class white woman that is working in Arizona, I'll just use my state, one of my states, and you lost your license or you choose not to license and but you serve whoever comes to you. You're not, you know, oh, working in a particular saying. community. Mm-hmm. I worry when you call yourself a traditional midwife because traditional midwives are, they have a very different meaning oh, to people of okay. color. Okay, I'm
1: totally going to adopt what you just yeah. said. It's now become-
0: but saying that. that, but saying that, I think that there are women that want a midwife like that, you know, they, because of exactly what you said, maybe like in Arizona twins but, is not legal. But what and... you said is,
1: a, I mean, even in this conversation, <laughs> we're both like the most birthy people on North America and we still took each other, took it, t- took it different, different That's right. um, interpretations. Exactly. So yes. that is a great, that's a great point. You don't want to conflate a traditional midwife with an actual, like an indigenous midwife, like a the indigenous or series. a black
0: midwife. Well, yeah. Or a yeah. Asian midwife. What's the word that says like, there?
1: when you say traditional, we want to uh-huh. like, like we're talking about black midwives serving black, black clients or, or uh native American women, uh, midwives serving. What, what is it? What do you call a midwife that is in your culture and is
0: a traditional like, midwife. I know, but yeah. <laughs> but then So I I feel like there are communities that don't have that. And so yeah. like if you don't come from one of those communities, you should just call yourself an unlicensed. There
1: midwife. you go. Okay. All right. <laughs> you win the day. No, I love it. I love it because when I hear until talking to you and now I'm going to correct everyone that I hear. But until talking to you, the word traditional just meant that she used herbs and she was a little bit yes. more so- um
0: more of a hippie. Makes, okay. That is so awesome, Sarah, because that totally illuminates my whole point, That's which your whole is point. <laughs> my whole point is that as midwives, we have a lot of, There, people think a lot of things about us, right? Yeah. Like, there is so many misconceptions around midwives, but I like to say that when I see a traditional midwife, so a native American midwife or a black midwife so is really practicing and using the traditions and the ceremonies of their particular community, I think of that, like they're going to be using herbs and medicines and all these things. But that being said, almost all midwives use some form of, yeah, that's true. of alternative medicines. Yeah. I don't, there's not a better word for it, but, you know, and so... We all kind of do, but there is this thing of like, oh, this midwife is like she's groovier, she's groovier, <laughs> she's like, she's gonna show up with her bag of like herbs and she's gonna do some things. And for our native midwives, it's worse because it's like, oh, she's gonna come and draw, them or you know, for the black midwives, <laughs> what are the black midwives gonna do? What are the Asian midwives gonna do? Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think that there this is how our system has really destroyed midwifery in a way, because it has both made us like dirty,
1: ignorant. It's almost like, like it's it's all of that. taken just the medical part of the midwife and just talked about that instead of all the other stuff. Cause you say bring the earth, bring the drums, bring the songs, bring the bring the tents, bring the whatever it is, and that's been stripped away. Like
0: well. Or some people think that that's all it is and that we never, like, they think like that I never went to school, but I just like, I just bring my bag of herbs and I do (laughs) your birth. So, you know, so it's like this weird, and this is how the stigma around midwifery is so huge. You and me, we're going to fix it. We're going to fix this. It's so big, but it's really, really is based on what happened in the early 1900s. When the doctors came in and sort of said like, oh, you know, look at these granny midwives in the South. They're ignorant. They're old. They're dirty. They don't know anything. Oh, look at these. uh, Look at the Indian problem. You know, like like a good Indian is a dead Indian. Like that's what they used to say. And so they 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 took out all of the healers they took away all of the traditional midwives they they moved women from their tribal communities and they sent them far away to birth they sent their children far away to be in boarding schools i mean the destruction that has happened to the indigenous and the black communities in this country it's so destroyed that when you think about the the return of the midwife and what that could mean to a community that they want to birth with their own people. And that's, that really is so healing and so huge, you know, and I think that when all of this confusion that you and I even are, are talking about is that everybody has their own vision in their mind, but what is that vision based on? It's not really based. It's based on this very European male um, system of medicine that never, ever, ever um illuminated the true qualities of the midwife of color that was working in her community.
1: Oh my lands. Yeah you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Wow. And even in even if in groups that feel like they are pretty well I'm just speaking from okay sorry back up. I will complete a sentence, I promise. But there are a lot of people in my generation that do want to return to their practices. So they'll have circles and they'll and it's almost like they're just practice. They they don't because their moms aren't present and their grandmas aren't present, and so they're just getting it off TikTok, TikTok, YouTube, yeah, books, and trying to right. rein, almost reinvent their communities. And I yeah. think that's that's beautiful. But it would be just so amazing if a midwife, if we had traditional midwives, that could come in and, and help <laughs> these young girls yeah. figure it out. You know, like re re was it was reseed. I don't know. It's it's like. I just, I, I see more of a return to the wanting that traditional cultural practice, but where do you find it? That's not culturally appropriating from your own culture. Does that make sense? Like how
0: do you really know? Well, I think that's the, that's a, that's the white person dilemma is being so also very far away from, I think the white woman um, has had a lot of Things done to her as well, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that all women, the white woman dilemma, is to reconnect with roots that are not of this country. I mean, you're not native. So the native folks can connect to their country here, right? Well, it's but their I'm land, not, it's their territory. I'm but not even white talking folks, about I think can actually reach back into their own cultures, totally. whether it's Irish or whether it's old, you know, Scottish or whatever it is. Cause there's beautiful ceremony to be found in exactly. every country. But yeah. I just know about
1: 10 years ago when I started getting birthy, I would have a group and we'd have we'd have women from all colors in our group. And none of us were raised with any semblance of a tradition. So we were all like borrowing, like one girl would be like, Hey, I saw Bindi's and Hey, I I heard about this red tent thing. And Hey, I heard of a blessing way. And like, it would be just like this big mishmash of just trying to figure out what cultural stuff, because none of us, it wasn't a group of white women. It was, it was women that had been pulled out of their culture that, that were, were raised completely culturalists. So, I mean. (sighs) yeah it's it's difficult so how do we reclaim what is what is the first step to then reclaiming this space for our our sisters and our daughters
0: well I think it's understanding oneself primarily like what where are your roots who are your roots and what are the things in your circle or your cycle that need to be healed your cycle keep
1: talking about your cycle
0: what yeah. what do you mean by that? What are the
1: things in your cycle? Well, I
0: think that I think that when we think about ancestral trauma, it's a cycle, and I think mm. that for you know, I was just kind of referencing white women and and what's been done to white women as well, and um, and I, not focusing on white women, but I mean, I'm just saying like all, every person, right, has a cycle of 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 what they have had to go through because our ancestors' genes live in us and. So, I think that until there's a reckoning with one's cycle of their life and the good things and the bad, that I think that it's hard to even know, right, what who you are, like who, I who am I, I think is the first question. And then I think, you know, really deciding, like, well, I don't want to take from somebody else's culture, I want exactly. my own knowing, my own knowings. Um, I think that there is a lot of, um, a lot of appropriation that happens all the time in this country. And I think that it's just because people are lost. They don't really understand. Yeah. They don't know, but they don't have to be. And this is something I always say, like, I think that there are cultures that have been able to hold on to their traditions, even in the midst of being colonized, like, you know, and I mean, just the strength of the black person and the native person, Yeah. Um, you know, and how they've been able to hold on to so much ceremony uh, within their own traditions, I think is big. And, but I think that there are also so many people that haven't been able to do that. And so I think that it does take some digging. I think it also like, I mean, there's some cool things out there, you know, there's so many things where people can, just start to like do their own reading form their Mm -hmm. own groups, kind of like the groups you're talking about, um, where you sort of just have like three or four people come over and be like, hey, and I'm really trying to reconnect with this. What do you think? What are your resources? I think too, that if you're listening to this and you're a person of color, I think it's really important to know that you do have traditions and they're alive and well in this country, Mm -hmm. I think sometimes people aren't aware of that. And especially if you're a person of color that grew up very urban or grew up very far from your traditions, um, there are pretty much, I can think of midwifery groups for pretty much a lot of different cultures and that those cultures can all be connected with um, one way or another. So again, through the use of social media. Um, lots of books. There's so many books uh, written around different types of traditional birthing customs, things like that. But also sometimes reconnecting with people just from wherever your peoples are from, Yeah. depending on where they they immigrated from. Yeah.
1: So two questions. One is what about mixed cultural heritage? Yeah. How do you pick which one feels dominant? Can you honor both at the same time? And two is, can you feel, can you be adopted if you feel estranged Mm. from your original heritage, could you, can you be adopted into another heritage? Does that make
0: sense? Um, that does make sense. So I think for the the first question, I would say, um, uh, okay, so. Because <laughs> it seems like if so, you,
1: it would be easy to return to your roots if you only had one set of roots. If you're like, yeah, but, but most people know, I think,
0: I think that it, so thinking about how indigenous people have to think about this, this is a big question because our communities have been so destroyed, but I think that it's really about the community that you serve and, and the community that you are aligned with and who claims you as theirs. So if you're, you know, half white and half black, I think that within you, you have a a community that you identify with more. And this is a question of being multicultural. Like, I think for everybody, it will be different. You know, Um, I think if you're half black and half brown, right? Like, you'll have a cultural tradition that'll resonate. The cool thing about this day and age is that people are melding all this stuff together, especially these amazing millennials, these young people. Um, And I think that as hopefully as we move forward, the question is put to us to have to choose not by ourselves, but by white culture. Um, We've always had to choose what side we want to be on. And it's not anything that our societies have ever done is particularly tribal communities have always identified very strongly with their land and with their tribes, but they've never felt that they've had to fully identify the way that white culture has created that. So Mm. for instance, gender, like, you know, being two-spirit or or being transgender, you know, things like that, that's something very natural to tribal communities. That's never been anything that they have felt like they've needed to define, but how, you know, the everything around colonialism and Christianity and all that stuff. So I feel like for multicultural folks, you know, there have always been multicultural people always forever. Um, And it was not the people themselves that had to choose what they wanted to be. It was the society that chose. So if you were half black and half white, but you looked black, you're gonna be black in this culture because that was white society choosing for you. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that there's a lot of that. And so I think that that's a question that really isn't about how people choose. It's really a question about our society and how broken it is. The second one about adopting another culture, I think that's tricky um, because Mm -hmm. it feels like that's a question that's not based in equity. It feels like that's, um, uh, because I feel like, again, people shouldn't have to choose. Like they should be able to, um, you know, you can't, you can't, there's a a really awesome Mohawk uh, elder. Her name is Geji Cook and she has been a midwife for a long time and we had this conversation once and i remember her saying like if you aren't born and you don't come from the longhouse which is the first nations way of talking about their communities if you don't if you don't come from the longhouse it's like you can't say that you're from the longhouse right you know? yeah and so i think that that is a very traditional way of thinking about your community and where you come from and so, you know, a lot of people grapple with this. I think Black mm-hmm. Americans grapple a lot because they were taken away from Africa. They were taken away from their peoples. And I think a lot of Latinx folks in this country grapple with it a lot as well because borders crossed us. And Native people grapple with this as well because borders crossed them. Um, so again, it isn't it isn't our communities that have had to make these choices. It was, they were done to us.
1: Mm, interesting. What were you saying about the millennials, the youngs? Finding, going back to their roots. Yeah, they're really cool, aren't they?
0: (laughs) They're so cool. They're so cool.
1: Going back to their roots, but, and, and not feeling like they need to be adopted into a culture, but understanding the cultures of their community, you know, and being... I mean, I, I just remember my friend, this is a long time ago, but she learned <laughs> that Bindi's like were c- cultural appropriation. She's like, we're yeah. never, ever going to do Bindi's again. And we're like, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. Like it was like an, an enlightenment thing. We're like, oh, what else are we appropriating? Oh, what else are we? Oh, interesting. Okay. And then you become like, so it's kind of, I just want to say it's, it's sometimes a messy process to figure out where you came from and who you are yeah, and, and sometimes you make mistakes and you offend people and then yeah. you,
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, it is. Um, I think too, like the other thing I like about the millennials a lot is that they're changing the narrative. I think that's actually the bigger thing is that, yeah, they're they're done with racism and all that other stuff. But I think that what's really cool is that the narrative that younger people are using now when they talk about things, it's not the same. It's like the words are different and the way that people are being talked about, they're not othering people as much mm, and they're not, yeah, yeah. they are, you yeah. know, and it so is this so is, true. and also just the economy is different to younger people, like so much about racism is power. Um, and I feel like this, this new group of folks, they have a really different view of power and what it yeah. means. And so I think that it's, it's really a societal change. I think that's a really awesome thing. So
1: really quick happening. though, what Um, back to the, I just thought of some another question I had. So what if you are like personally adopted into a family like like you marry in or you've been raised with or then is that it, it does, is that okay to to say like I, I don't we have a lot I know several people that have been adopted into the United States into various homes but they came from Like the Ukraine or Romania or Uh China or, you know, these other cultures and, but then they're adopted into their family here. So can you be adopted? Like if, if a culture accepts you with open arms, like, can you, can you be grafted? (laughs) Grafting. Can we talk about So grafting?
0: I, I wanna give a lot of grace to a lot of my Asian family and friends out there. And by family, I just mean relatives, people yeah. that I don't even know, but they're well, because all family. I think this is a very big question that right now a lot of folks in the activist community that are adopted, that are Asian and they're adopted. I think this is something that they've been grappling with for a long time. And I just want to give grace to that because I'm not an expert and I don't want to say anything out of respect to that work that they're doing. Um, So I guess I'm just going to say, I don't know, uh, because Mm. I don't know. And I've, I've, I'm not somebody that has done a lot of work in that area. Um, And I think that I would defer to just these incredible activists in the Asian community that are working around these um, subjects, because I think this is a really, really important subject. I also think that there is a whole thing around adoption in our country that has a crazy history. There's a, you know, um, we talked a little bit about natives having to go to boarding school, but there's also, uh, um, a lot of, there's, there's this whole, there's this thing called orphan adduction that happened in the Southwest, which I think really goes, to talk about how children were also abducted because their families were vulnerable. Like there's so many facets to this. It's a very, uh, it's a, well, I've got the rest of the day. I go
1: to bed. (laughs) We could go on for nine
0: hours. It's a tenuous conversation. So I'm just going to say that I'm not, I don't feel qualified to answer. Yeah. that.
1: That makes a lot of sense. But what I do feel from you is that you are very optimistic that in several generations, um, in the future, that will be, treating this completely differently?
0: Um I think that um I'm hoping like not even in several generations. I'm hoping in <laughs> by the next generation. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. I mean, you know, of course it's gonna all take a lot of time, but I'm hoping I'm hoping to see some good change just in my lifetime.
1: I, I agree with I've already seen change in my life, you know, and just in the 10 years I've been in the birthing community, just a lot of Change, but I'm excited for what our daughters and our granddaughters and okay. So one more question. Um, what, um, in what ways have you seen women heal through their connection Mm -hmm. with their foremothers and their cultural birth practices? And then I will let you move on with your day, but you've been just too fun to talk to.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow. So, you know, the thing about birth that's so cool is that birth gives us all an opportunity to, um, it's almost like birth opens up this portal of where we have choices. And so one of those choices I see a lot of women and birthing people make is that they recognize that they want to heal from things. Cause when people get pregnant, I feel like their whole life comes back to them. You know, yeah. like you're <laughs> pregnant and like everything you've ever been through comes back to you. Um yep. And so I think that when someone gets pregnant, they have this opportunity to like, think about how are they eating? How are they managing stress? What is the trauma that's coming back that they're maybe is bringing fear or what are the things they have to work out with, with their partner or with their family, or even with their parents, you know, their moms and their dads and all this other stuff. And so I think that I see some people really consciously making a decision to do something different do something better or heal themselves from things because they have this child coming into the world and they want to be, they want this child to experience life in a different way, you know? And so I think that a lot of people have an opportunity to make such incredible decisions. And this is why I think it's really important people do their, you know, do their interviews and do all their research and everything so that they're really choosing carefully for themselves what they want, you know? And so, um, so what I have seen is I've seen people make a lot of really dramatic changes and they're not always easy. Mm -hmm. They can be really hard. And then I've seen people be real careful about their birthing decisions so that they have the birth that they want in the place that they want in the place that they feel safe, whether that's hospital home or birth center, And they have the the people that make them feel valued and loved, and they ensure that their birth is a birth of love, no matter how it happens. Um, And I think that somebody comes away from that a lot stronger. And I think then it's like, sets up this platform for somebody to go like, wow, I did that myself. I self-directed my own, I was autonomous in my own birthing process um, because again, birth is not an illness. It's actually a part of our journey of life. And I think that if people have that attitude towards it, then it's really a different thing than if it's like, Oh my God, I'm sick. And somebody has to save me and take this baby out of my you know womb and all this other stuff, you know? And so I just think there's different ways of approaching birth. And some of those ways have the ability to be pretty miraculous when it comes to healing
1: it's not like just changing your diet, but it's also like going back to your national, your natural, your heritage and, and having the opportunity to use those tools to.
0: Cool. Cool. Yes, okay. for sure.
1: All right. Seriously, I could talk to you all day. Um, tell <laughs> everybody where they can find more about you and connect with you, oh. all the things you do.
0: Yes. I definitely want to say if you have any, if you're a person of color you have an interest in accessing or becoming a midwife, um, just definitely find us through changingwomeninitiative.com. Um, all the information is there. And I would say if you are a consumer and you just are interested in just midwifery in general, just know that on social media, as well as your own regulatory state, you can find so much information about the midwives in your own state. And the associations and things like that. So I just say get involved, learn about your midwives, learn what they do, um, support us, so that we there can be more of us um, filling the gaps. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Sarah. I appreciate. It. I don't know if that was the turn that you were. That was great. For. No, I was
1: I was just <laughs> excited to talk to you. I don't have any judgment, but it was really really cool. There's a lot of things that you said that um, really make a lot of sense and kind of clarify my own positions that I didn't have words for before. So thank
0: you. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity and I appreciate it.
1: Please visit us at birthcircle.com. Join our Facebook groups or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience.